In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Now, you might imagine that given what I do for a living, that we talk in my house fairly frequently about God and Jesus and church and theology, right? Just like anyone else. You go home, you talk to the people at home about your life, about what you're doing. And it's true that my wife and I are both nerds, um, and we spend a decent amount of time hanging out with other nerds. But it's also probably true that the conversations that we have are not as academic or erudite as you might think. One of the things that we frequently reference, sometimes seriously, sometimes as a joke, is about the questions we would ask God, will ask God, when we get there. And one of Lynn's most pressing questions, and she'd probably be mad at me for telling you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, one of her most pressing questions is about where the socks go. Does the dryer actually eat them? Are they beamed up somewhere? Do they become some part of a reincarnated wave in heaven with other socks? Surely they must go somewhere. And for me, one of the more pressing questions right now is about teeth. Having watched my daughter get most of her teeth now, and now as my son starts to drool, even though we won't see teeth for a while, right? We know they're doing their thing back there. Is that really the best delivery method? Right? I have real questions for the Lord about that. Do we have to do it twice? Does it have to be so painful? I mean, granted, it would be weird if I walked in tomorrow and Luke had all his teeth all of a sudden. That would be a little weird. But really? Is that the best way to do it? Now, far be it for me to judge, right? It's, it's not up to me to criticize. But I do have questions. <laughs> and as you might imagine, we have a number of more serious questions too, just like you. To all of us, God is a mystery. And while scripture and tradition reveal some of who God is, there is so much more that we don't know, that we can't know that our brains are just not wired to know, aren't big enough to hold. In fact, one of the canticles that we frequently say at morning prayer comes from the prophet Isaiah, in which God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. For my ways and my thoughts are higher than yours. And I think that's a helpful image. It makes sense to me that the creator of the universe might still have a few secrets hidden up those magnificent sleeves. But this, in the midst of the mystery and the questions, this is where we begin today, because it's where our text began today. The disciples begin with a question, and to be fair, they must have had many, because this is post-resurrection, right? He's come back, and now he's getting ready to leave again, and he's been trying to prepare him, prepare them all for that. But did you hear that text that I just read? And the prayer that he says for his disciples? If you don't have questions about that, you weren't listening. It's a very back and forth, yours and mine, confusing kind of text. So they must have had questions. How lucky they are, right? How fortunate that Jesus is physically there, that he can at least for the moment answer those questions, or not. Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? but he doesn't answer them, does he? It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, he says. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Is that an answer? I don't think so. The disciples and many other faithful people at the time were of course waiting for the Messiah to come and to restore God's kingdom. And in that, you should hear the word power. They were waiting for Israel to become again a great nation, to conquer others and to stop being occupied and conquered themselves. They expected this Messiah to come and reign, to sit on David's throne and to lord it over their enemies. And so they ask him, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom? And they're asking about, will we get our status back? Will we get our privilege back? Is this the time when things will go back to the way they used to be, the way we liked them? And the truth is, it's not so different a question than we might ask. I know there are people all over the larger church universal, not just Episcopalians, of course, but all over the church, wondering when God will restore the church. When will the tables turn and things will go back to the way they used to be? Wouldn't that be great? Is this the time when you will speak peace to the nations? Is this the time when you will restore us and our hearts and our peace of mind? Is this the time when we will see you? Go ahead and fill in that blank. What is it that you would ask? What is it that you might like to have back? We all have questions and we all carry, I think, those desires, those, those feelings, those memories of what used to be. And if we don't, it's because we aren't paying enough attention to the world around us or to the world within us. And the truth is that as Episcopalians, we love questions. We make room for questions all the time in our conversations, in our journey together. We make room for debate and for wondering and even for doubt. And we're pretty proud of that, of that ability to be theologically open, to hold on to what is sort of core and orthodox to our faith in the center and to really kind of let people go on their own spiritual journey. That's something in this church we're particularly proud of, that questions are a good thing, that longings and wrestling is a good thing. And in the midst of that, we encourage you to have your own relationship with God, to make that your priority, to make that wondering and seeking a part of your own spiritual journey, and not just to come to church and expect to be told what to think, right? Because I can't tell you what to think, I can tell you what I think, but only you can decide what you think. And the truth is, I think that God is always going to be mysterious, above us, higher than us, bigger than we can understand. There are always going to be things that we can't quite grasp, things that we don't quite understand, why God intervenes here but not there, why some prayers are answered and others aren't. There are always going to be times and moments that we don't understand until we get there and we see God face to face until we stand in the presence of Jesus and look into his marvelous face. And yes, there are clues, some things we know, some things we're called to do and focus on, and one of them I think is very present in the text today. Jesus says to them, by means of his not really an answer, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. So they're asking for power of a particular kind, and he says, actually, I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to give you power, but it's not the power you expect. I'm going to give you a gift, but it's not what you asked for. Today, we hear the story of the ascension, and churches all over the world are remembering this moment that we hear in the gospel about Jesus sort of ascending and disappearing when he says goodbye to the disciples and disappears into the clouds. He promises that the Holy Spirit, the advocate, is coming. He promises, too, that he will be back someday, right? We heard that several times last week, and it carries over to this week. I am coming to you, he says. I am coming. And then at the end of this text, he asks us, maybe pleads with us, as he prays to God for us, that we might do the work we've been given to do, and that we might figure out how to do that in such a way that we can all be one. that they might all be one. Now, I suspect that most of us, on most days, wouldn't characterize our life as a fiery ordeal. If you would, I invite you to come on in and we'll talk about that. It's my hope that you wouldn't characterize your life most days in that way. But the truth is that there are still many, many, many obstacles, right? To our claiming our faith, to our living this life, to our doing the work that God calls us to do, and certainly to our figuring out how to be one. What does that even mean? What kind of unity are we talking about when Jesus says that they might all be one? Certainly in the epistle, Peter is talking about obstacles that are a little different than ours, and I think it's important to name that. Peter is talking about people who are being tortured and killed for their faith. He's talking about the martyrs. He's talking about this wave of Christians who were suffering physically and yet still bearing witness proudly to what they believed, to the hope that was within them, right? We talked about that phrase last week. They were offering to everyone that story of Jesus, their hope. And they're still coming together and participating in the rituals, and we know that from the text, right? Because Jesus is talking to a particular community, and so are these authors of these other texts and of John's other writings that are to come. It's possible that this gospel passage written so much later and part of sort of John's literature and tradition is actually speaking to a very particular group within the early church. And what's interesting about that is that this group would eventually give rise to the Gnostics and, and sort of had a very different approach to some of this. They would have heard Jesus' prayer in a very different way, and they would have carried Jesus' story in a very different way. They understood that they were physically and emotionally and spiritually connected to God and to each other in this profoundly intimate but very concrete, very palpable, very touching kind of way. And in the way that they lived, this community, as far as we can tell, although this is all pretty hotly debated by scholars right now, um, there's this sort of ardent belief in Jesus that leads them to live differently and leads them to honor the people around them differently. They believe in this sort of mystical connection that they share as Christians by baptism because of the Holy Spirit 
that connects them to God and to each other in a, in a really interesting kind of palpable way, almost like there is actually a cord between them. They would have heard this prayer at the end of the gospel in a profoundly different way. And they would have noticed that it was one of the prayers in the gospel in the whole of scripture that Jesus prays that is unanswered. He prays for his disciples and by extension for Christians who would come after, for those of us who would believe, to flourish in our ministry and to be one. And it's one of the only things, one of the only prayers Jesus actually prays in all of scripture that remains unanswered. And I wonder this morning if we might try to hear it in the same way that this community would have heard it. This Johannine community is what it's called of the tradition of John. If we can imagine for a second that we are intimately connected to each other, to our neighbors, to the world around us, and also to God. How then would we think about what it means for us to be one What does that unity look like? In some ways, we try to do that pretty carefully around here, actually. There aren't that many churches that partner with other denominations, right? So we have a concrete way that we live that out here at St. Matt's. And whenever Mark and I are talking about doing things together, about joint activities, this certainly is one of the things in the back of my head that we're able to concretely live out this prayer. But I think there's probably more to it than that. What if we decided to try to make that happen? That even though we don't have all the answers, and even though God is still mysterious, and even though we don't have enough and our heads aren't big enough, what if we started to imagine that we were so intimately connected to our neighbors that they were almost a part of us, that their welfare was tied to ours, that their well-being was tied to ours, What if here in this space we could imagine that and then we could take that out with us into the rest of the places that we go? And while we do that, if we also imagine that God was literally in us and connected to us in such an intimate way that God was engaged and active in everything that we do, I think it would change the questions we ask. I think it would change how we imagine ourselves to be in the world and the power that we think we might want. What we know in this text is that we have been given power by the Holy Spirit, each of us, to do a particular piece of work, to be connected to God and to each other. What if we used the shared pieces that we have and trusted that they were enough to tell the story, to invite other people to know the hope and the joy and the promise that we share in this place? This week, I want to invite you to do a couple of things. First, to think about the questions that you would ask, that you maybe will ask when you get there. And specifically, think about the questions that might be holding you back. The question that the disciples begin with today is something that is holding them back. It is a desire to go back in time, to step back, to undo progress, to to make Jesus into something he isn't. What is it maybe that you need to let go of? What is it maybe that you would ask for that is holding you back? 
And then try this week to let go of those particular questions and obstacles. Think about the power that you have been given as a child of God. And try this week to imagine that connection between you and God and your neighbor. And I want you, if you will, if you'll go one step further, to think of three specific things that you can do this week to help build that vision of Jesus, to help make that prayer come true. What does it mean to try to be one? Not just here in this space with us, although that too is a challenge, right? Whenever two or three are gathered, you're always gonna have some struggles, some difference of opinion. What does it mean to love so well, to be connected so well that we become one? I'm going to invite you to do three specific things this week. You don't have to tell me what they are, but if you want to, I'm all ears. What are the three specific things you can do this week to honor your neighbors, to be a part of something that is related to justice and equality and compassion and mercy? What is it that you can do with your own hands and in your own body to build this vision of Jesus that we all might be one? Start small, three things, amen.